Basically, we're going to be focusing on something called land entitlement. Many of you know what that is, but many of you may not. And so we're just going to talk a little bit about um, a couple different things related to that. First, a little bit about me. Um, I'm a family physician and medical director for a group in San Diego, California. So I'm just down here about an hour. So took the day off. I'm still practicing medicine full time and just love real estate. And so that's why I do it on the side. I'm general partner for the Rockstar Capital Development Group, Rockstar Capital 2. And I also do other deals as well. And so that's my family, my husband Griff, and my son Mason. So today we're going to cover in 15 minutes what is land entitlement, who does it, why is it a good investment, and what are the three biggest risks, and how to avoid them, and why I personally love investing in land. And we all know Mark Twain, he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, buy land, they're not making it anymore. Still holds true today. And as we all know, anyone who owns any property, uh, which is many people here, is that uh, land and anything that uh, is on the land is going up in value. So uh, I grabbed this picture off the internet and it's to illustrate that this is really not what land entitlement is at all. So there's a bit of a misconception about what land entitlement is and uh, it doesn't involve any backhoes or dump trucks or digging or anything like that. The only digging that'll be done during the land entitlement process is taking a couple soil samples and evaluating exactly what is on the land. So we'll dig into that a little bit. Um, there's a couple different terms for this. It can be called a permitted lot, a paper lot, um, land disturbance permits, you know, all these things being basically mean land entitlement. And so uh, the definition is it's raw land that has been granted subdivisional approval by the local municipality with all land disturbance permits in hand. So it's another word is shovel ready. That's what I like to call it. And um, it really is a, a business, which is a niche product. I mean, obviously land entitlement's not new. All developers since forever have had to do this in-house before they would build anything. And many of you are involved in that uh, niche of things. Um, but to do it just on its own and then sell the paper lot to someone like a national home builder is a bit of a niche. And it has grown out of the recession and the crash in 2008. I'll get into that a little bit more. So, you know, a little bit about what land entitlement is. And, you know, we're going to go over this whole process pretty quickly here in 15 minutes. And um, the, you know, the details of it, uh, uh, fortunately, you get to be spared because I do this talk and it's longer. You know, it's like, you know, 45 minutes and we get into the details of all these things. So you, luckily we don't go into it because it's actually really boring. Um, <laughs> zoning, you know, I talk about zoning variances and, and getting permits. Um, you need use permits for utilities and for building. You even need um, permits for landscaping. Like for example, if you're planning on putting a pond into your, you know, um, you know, your development, you need permits for everything. And of course, where do you get your permits from? <laughs> City Hall and the government. And so you're talking to the municipalities and it's just, it's a lot of paperwork. That's basically what it comes down to. Um, there's also, you know, the um, environmental assessment and there's um, engineering surveys, uh, phase one environmental, sometimes phase two, depending on what they find. Got to go back through the chain of title and see who's ever owned that land. Um, and some things might come up that might make it a no-go. For example, if, um, if there's a, ever a dry cleaner on a piece of land, that is considered not allowed to have residential homes on it due to the potential toxicity. Um, something else might show up like radon, or maybe you'll find that there's gigantic boulders in the land that just makes it you know, untenable to build on. So basically the process, it's, it's a due diligence process. So any builder who's going to be buying homes and uh, or building homes is going to go through this process to see if they can build homes on it. It takes about three to 18 months on average, sometimes longer, you know, because 
the government is moving slower right now with issues of labor and, and things like that. Um, but there's a lot of work that's involved um, with talking, submitting proposals, waiting for the results, sometimes socializing with the community, you know, like, um, you know, like they put an announcement out like there's going to be a new development and then everyone comes and yells at the developers. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, I alluded to this earlier, that the developers have always done this process. And so the question is, well, aren't the National Home Builders doing this? And the answer is, of course, yes, historically they were doing this. Um, in 2008, however, um, they really had a bit of a problem because um, nobody wanted new homes all of a sudden, basically overnight, lots of foreclosures on the market. Nobody wanted to build any homes. And so they were stuck with a whole bunch of land that they had already purchased. And that was a loss for them. So internally, they had decided, most of them, to do uh, just purchase entitled land. It, it really reduces their risk. And it also speeds up the process from when they purchase to when they can sell those homes and make a profit. Um, so who is doing it then for the national home builders? Third party operators. And so that's who Rockstar Capital works with. Um, the, the niche is, is highly specialized. Uh, we call the folks land acquisition managers or the ones who actually oversee the project and make sure that all the boxes get checked and everything gets done to get, the, um, get that paperwork in hand. And, and they used to be employed by the National Home Builders. And so since they got let go from there, they're looking for jobs, they have these skills, and they are basically independent now. And they're very efficient, they can move more quickly on opportunities, but the benefit too is that they know all the home builders and they have their cell phone numbers. And so what happens is the National Home Builders will say, hey, you know, um, Joe Smith, I would like some land in Charlotte. Do you think you can find me 500 lots in Charlotte? And they'll go out and find it. And so we've got, you know, a good uh, two-way uh, line of communication for them to work together and it, it benefits both sides and speeds things up as well. So, you know, why is it a good investment? We're going to talk a little bit about the housing market right now. So single family homes are in massive demand. There's at least 5 million homes short nationwide and there's obviously low inventory and there's been a huge increase in value anyone who owns a house knows this i like to go into zillow every couple weeks and refresh and then i can see how much more my house is worth i live in san diego so it keeps going up um and but that's not just san diego this is everywhere and as of um march uh median home price was 429 and it was 323 before COVID. it just keeps going up and up but um there are very minimal supply of homes on the market and initially it was thought to be related to COVID, but it's obviously much more than that now. Maybe some repercussions from COVID, but it's more than that. And the big driver is the demand, and it's from the millennials. And what basically, there are tons of them turning 30 this year, last year, and the next year. Um, and this is their peak home buying. Um, those of us in multifamily, I also do multifamily, um, we always said multifamily is a great place to invest because, you know, the millennials, they don't want to buy homes, they want to rent. You know, well, now those millennials are getting older and now there's a new generation behind them that likes to rent, unfortunately. But the, um, they're ready to, to have kids, move out, get some space, have kids or, or a pet. And so, um, unfortunately for them, though, there's not very many homes out there and they're very expensive. You've all probably heard the stories about people uh, putting in multiple offers and, you know, they keep getting outbid by cash buyers and investors and things like that. Um, and so they are leading most of the home buying right now. And then there was a COVID effect too, where people don't have to live in the center of the city anymore. They can, um, they can move wherever they want. They're remote and they want some space. 
So, you know, in other inventory factors, um, you know, there's the COVID effect. Foreclosures really are not an issue anymore. That used to provide a fair amount of inventory, but there's not foreclosures. First, there was the moratorium. Now, people have tons of equity, so you know, nobody's going to walk away from their house. Um, but the main inventory factor is that builders have been underbuilding for years. And this next slide has, has a pretty remarkable graph, which shows the homes built in the U.S. by decade and millions. And so you can see that the national home builders, since the 1950s, have always built about 20 million homes per, per decade. And in 2010 to 2019, they built 5.8. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's really a lot less. And the reason, of course, is that they, you know, during the recession, they didn't build homes for a long time, but then they never really picked it back up again. Like they probably should have. And then now with COVID and supply chain issues, it was just like perfect storm of housing shortage. So uh, they forecast the builders while they're trying to catch up. There's obviously issues um, with getting the new homes built into market. But last year they built 1.13 million, and then they're going to be doing around the same for 22 and 23. So uh, if you add those up, that's like you know 3.5. That's not 5 million, and we're short at least 5 million. So basically, we're going to be short for a while. So everybody wants to know if we're in a bubble. And um, in 2006, you know, speculation was driving a lot of the increased prices, and of course everybody and their dog owned a home. And they owned a home that was too expensive. I was buying, uh, I was buying a home just shortly before that. And I remember as a, a, a new doctor in San Diego, uh, I was like, I'm going to spend $300,000. And I went out with my realtor for a few days. And all of a sudden, I was up to five fifty dollars because I was like, well, I qualify and I deserve it. And, you know, and that's what everybody else was doing at the time, too. So people were um, owning way more house than they could afford. And, but now we've got, you know, solid demographics pushing um, the demand. The rates are low-ish. Obviously, they're going up, and um, there's just not enough inventory. So that's it's a it's a classic case of supply and demand. And also, um, like I mentioned, we have more equity, and our credit scores have gone up. And us as Americans, we have saved more quite a bit over the last couple of years. And it's not as easy to get loans as it used to be. So in terms of risks of land entitlement, so if you're going to invest in land, you're going to come across some potential pitfalls. And um, they can be things like wetlands. Uh, what's, wetlands are a problem. If you find that you have wetlands in the land that you're looking at buying, it's extremely difficult to build there. Um, you need an expert or consultant to help you navigate that. Um, if you're in a flood zone, doesn't mean you can't build, but it, and, and if so say, you know, it does flood and it's just land, it's just raw land, then who cares? Well, the people who buy it from you are gonna care. They're not gonna want that. And their flood insurance will be a lot more. So flood insurance will really eat into profits of buying this uh, type of uh, land. And topography is really important too. It might look good until you go and actually take a close look at it and see that it's either really sloped or there's giant boulders or there's too many hills and it's not amenable to building a tract home development. Um, so another risk would be the um, another real estate crash, uh, which would essentially mean like lack of new homes for, build, for purchase or for rent because you can build new homes on a build for rent. Uh, so new homes that are just rented, rented. And as we just talked about, that's probably not likely to occur at this time. Um, another risk uh, is issuance of permits. So, you know, getting a city to agree to your plan. Um, basically, if you come up with a compliant design though, they, 
they must give it to you. It's just, you have to be compliant and that might take a little bit of back and forth to get things um, lined up correctly. But the biggest thing is really that it can take longer than expected um, because the cities move slow. And if anyone has ever tried to do any development on their own home or anything like that, it, it can take months to get a permit. So what's really important when you are purchasing land is to have a solid land purchase agreement or LPA. Um, basically, you have a very extended due diligence period and you control rather than own the land. So just like you have a due diligence period when you buy a multifamily property or even your own house, um, this is just much longer, more in the range of 18 months. Um, it basically allows you to limit your risk to the soft costs of the deal, which, um, you know, is on average about $1,500 per lot. And, you know, what we, what we try to do with the builder that we work with, they, um, they'll do all the due diligence and they would never purchase the land until they're 99% sure that it can be sold to a national home builder. And if they come across something along the way that doesn't line up, then they just have to walk away and those soft costs, you know, will be a loss. Um, they also try to do a simultaneous close, which means that instead of putting up, say, say the, the land is $5 million, instead of getting that $5 million and buying the land and then selling it to a home builder and making more, they try and do a purchase and close on the same day, which allows them to skip that $5 million capital event. We can do that most of the time, um, but 80% of the time, except for the really bigger projects, they do require some bridging capital. Um, and then you know, 95% of the home builders and hedge fund buyers will not close until they know they want that land disturbance permits to be in hand, which makes sense. A quick case study. Um, this is a deal that, uh, that I did with Rockstar and the operator um, in 2020. Um, it's in Waxhaw Landing, which is just south of Charlotte. Uh, 500 lots, 169 acres, purchased it for 6.5 and put in about one to 1.5 in soft costs. So we raised 8 million from investors and we've created a small syndication. We offered our investors 18% annual returns. And um, before we even got started, as you can see at the bottom here, we had an LOI from Madani Homes for 14 million. Um, we didn't accept the LOI. Well, the operator didn't accept the LOI um, because they like to have a little bit of friendly competition between the builders. And so eventually, less than a year later, it did sell for 16.75 million um, to Madani. And so for the, uh, for the operator, that was a 2.09x in a year. They waited a year and a day, of course, capital gains. So the benefits of investing in land entitlement, um, in my opinion, are that it provides good cash flow. Um, the structure of, of the fund that we have is to provide cash flow because we're lending. And so uh, whereas a lot of the deals that I'm involved in are equity deals, this is more of a lending fund or a debt deal, and so it provides good cash flow. The deals are short term, they're nine to 18 months. And so that allows us the flexibility to put all capital that is brought in to work quickly. We're not waiting for 10 or 15 million of equity to buy a big multifamily asset. Um, and if things start to change, we can pivot quickly. We can you know, back out of something or get into more things because they are over so quickly. Um, I like the asymmetric risk reward. This is a very conservative area to be in. There's a huge demand. And for me, investing in land or any real estate asset is considered, to me, conservative compared to things like the stock market. So I'm always looking for those high rewards and low risk. Um, it's also a good way to diversify your portfolio. Um, you know, if you're only in multifamily investing, you know, it's good to maybe get on the other side of things and do some lending. And also, it's hard to buy a single family home for profit right now because, you know, they're just so darn expensive. If that's your business is buying single family homes to rent out, 
very difficult, but this is getting in kind of early, in the early stage, kind of like a seed round of venture capital, except you're getting in at the land stage. Um, it's an extreme niche, meaning that it's specialized and not everybody can do it. You're definitely not going to go to a weekend seminar and come out a land acquisition manager and know exactly what to do. And you could run into trouble if you um, don't do it correctly. You could lose a lot of money. Um, also, uh, we're looking at building affordable houses. So these are this is what the need is for the young people to get into homes. So the homes are in the 300 to 350. Maybe it's going up a little bit now. But these are the, the affordable home track developments, not McMansions on tiny lots with big houses. It's more of a, a starter home. Good afternoon. My name is Hamid Rakhnian. The good portion of our business is land development and make it child ready for the national builder. Uh, my question is, how do you see the balance of the two, uh, 2022 and 2023 for the demand from the national home builders for the lands that are shovel ready? Oh, they have a massive demand. The operator that we work with cannot keep up with the demand from the national home builders because they're trying to catch up and they know that there's profit there to be made. And um, it, they're limited by supply chains and things like that, but they buy things in bulk. And to them, they're not gonna stop building just because something's a little bit more expensive. And the beauty of the person who's doing the land entitlement or the lending on it, it doesn't, that's not our problem. <laughs> the supply chain isn't our problem. Is the increase of the uh, real estate uh, interest, would, would it have an impact on the land sale? No, it does not. Because we're not we're not borrowing from from places like banks, so the increase in interest rates doesn't affect us. We we lend to the operator and we charge them a fixed interest rate, which is negotiable between us. But from the point of view, the national home builder, the cost of delivering the goods to the end user mm -hmm. is going to go up, and as such, the demand for the housing will, uh, will trickle down, and that will have an impact on the land. What do you think? I don't I don't believe so. You know, definitely interest rates are going up. Then, you know, it's going to make houses more expensive in some ways and the home builders, but the home builders aren't going to start stop building because of interest rates going up a little bit. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hey, Tom Chase with Affordable Housing Loans. On your, uh, would you pay your investors, um, you mentioned, is that paid on a periodic cash flow or when the deal sells? So we provide a preferred return, which starts accruing immediately at 8%. It's paid out quarterly. And then we have profit sharing events, which will also be quarterly. And so that those profit sharing events are paid out when we receive a return on our note that uh, we've lent out. 